Good day, friends, and welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. And the project is to work through the entire Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. You join us today in this magnificent journey, and we're in season three, and we're getting towards the second half of Matthew chapter 10. And we'll be thinking about both the equipping of God's messenger and the conduct of God's messenger when he's out and about interacting with the world and what Jesus teaches by the example of him teaching his disciples here. Can I just suggest that if you're here for the first time, why not consider making a decision to make the study of the Bible part of the rhythm of your daily life? And you can do that by clicking on the subscribe button wherever you're receiving your podcasts from and you should never miss another episode again. So with that said, it's bye for now. And we'll drop into the main text and pick up where we left off last time. And I'll pick it up at the end just to update you on a few things. So bye for now. Okay, let's begin today's time together by picking up the text in the second half of verse 8 of chapter 10 and see what it can teach us. And remember, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples, commissioning them and sending them out. And it says, Freely you have received, freely give. Provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts, nor bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staff. For a worker is worthy of his food. Now, this is a passage in which almost every sentence, every phrase would have rung a bell in the mind of the first century Jews who heard it said. In it, Jesus is giving his instruction to his disciples, which all the rabbis, or at least the very best of the rabbis of that time, would have tried to give similar to their students and disciples. And the first being, he says, freely you have received, so freely give. Now you see, Jesus, as all Jewish rabbis at that time, were bound by the Mosaic law. And they were bound to give their teaching freely for nothing, to ask no charge for it. The rabbi was absolutely forbidden to take money for teaching the law that Moses had received freely from God. In only one case could a rabbi accept payment. He might accept payment for the teaching of a child. For to teach a child was a parent's task, the Mosaic Law said. No one else should be required to spend that time and labour doing what was considered a parent's own duty. However, sometimes parents would pass that responsibility on to a rabbi and it was appropriate to pay them for that privilege. But generally, religious teaching had to be given without charge, without a request for money, and without any set price. This principle applied at other times too. In the Mishnah, the law laid it down that if a man took payments, for example, for acting as a judge, his judgments were then invalid. And it also said that if someone took payment for giving evidence as a witness in the court, then that witness's testimony was also void. And it's interesting that these are legal principles that were set in place at least 4,000 years ago, but they still apply to this day. 
A famous teacher from around the time of Christ called Rabbi Zadok said, Make not the law a crown wherewith to aggrandize thyself, nor a spade with which to dig thyself a grave. Another contemporary teacher of the time of Jesus called Hillel said, He who makes a worldly use of the crown of the law shall waste away. Hence thou mayst infer that whoever desireth a profit for himself from the words of God is helping on his own destruction. Strong words indeed. So it was laid down that just as God had taught Moses freely, without charge, without request, so should rabbis do also. By the way, there was another story of a teacher who at the time a very famous teacher from the time of Jesus called Rabbi Tarfon and he told of a story as how as a young rabbi he was once walking through a fig grove just after the fig harvest had taken place and as he passed through he ate some of the figs that had been missed and been left behind. The watchman of the fields came upon him and he started to beat him and there were several of them but he told them to stop and he told them who he was and and because he was a famous rabbi well known in the region they stopped and they let him go but all his life he said that he regretted that he'd used his status as a rabbi to save himself in writing about this he wrote all my days did i grieve for woe was me for i have used the crown of the law for my own profit so there was obviously people had very strong opinions and strict views on this at that time So when Jesus tells his disciple that they have freely received and they must freely give, he's telling them what the teachers of his own people and the rabbis of his time had been telling students for years. You see, the principle is, if we possess a precious secret, a precious insight from God, it is our duty not to hold on to it just for ourselves, but we should willingly, in fact, as best we can, try and pass it on to others. It should, in a sense, be a privilege always to share with others the riches of God, any riches that God has given us, both practically and spiritually in the sense of insights into his word and his law. But Jesus also tells his his disciples they're not to set out to acquire wealth, gold, silver or bronze for their purses. Now the Greek word used here for purse literally meant a girdle and this was a girdle which they wore around their waist. It was sort of a rather broad double belt and at each end for part of its length it had a double-sided piece of material creating a gap with which one could keep valuables and money relatively safely. Money was often carried in that double part of the girdle so the girdle acted as a sort of a purse for a Jewish traveller. But he also, Jesus tells them, not to take a bag for the journey. Now the bag he is talking about could be one of two things. It could be like a bag, a modern-day haversack in which provisions would ordinarily have been carried. But there's also another possibility. The word could have meant what was called a collecting bag. Sometimes the wandering rabbi and philosopher, they would take up a collection by placing a special bag on the ground while addressing the crowd. So in all these instructions, don't think that Jesus is just laying upon his disciples a deliberate and calculated discomfort that they should suffer. It's more the principles that lie behind their motivation for going out teaching the word of God. 
And once again, by speaking these words in this way, these are words that would have been very familiar to all the Jews of that era who heard it. Furthermore, the Talmud actually does say that no one was to go to the Temple Mount with staff, shoes, girdle of money, same thing as mentioned here, or dusty feet. The idea, when someone enters the Temple, that they should make it quite clear that they've left all the worldly stuff behind. Everything to do with their trade, their business, their financial, their worldly affairs. All those should be left outside the temple. And what I believe Jesus is saying to his disciples, and there by nature to us today, by applying these principles, that when we head out in mission, we must treat the whole world in a sense like the temple of God. If you're a child of God, you must never give the impression that your faith is in any way a business or profession through which you wish to store up wealth. Now, that immediately rings an alarm bell in my mind because it seems to me that teaching stands in contrast to so many modern-day preachers who often to me seem to focus on financing their own ministries or lifestyles. Jesus' instruction means that the man of God must show interest by his attitude to material things in that it should always be secondary to their first interest, which is to spread the message of God. But then finally Jesus says something about this this famous phrase, that the workman deserves his wage, sometimes translated as sustenance, sometimes as food. Once again, the Jews would have recognised this phrase totally. Now, although it was true that a rabbi should not accept payment for the preaching of the word, but it was also true that it was considered at the same time to be a privilege and an obligation to support someone who was teaching you from the scriptures. It was the ordinary person's responsibility to financially support a Bible teacher. If he was truly a man of God and you are learning spiritual truths and benefiting from his ministry, then the ordinance here is that you should financially support that work. Another famous first century rabbi called Rabbi Jochahan laid it down that it was the duty of every Jewish community to support a rabbi. And all the more so because the rabbi will be naturally neglecting his own affairs to concentrate on other people and the application of the things of God into the lives of those people. Rabbi Eliezer ben Jacob, another contemporary of Jesus, wrote, He who receives a rabbi in his house or as his guest and lets him have enjoyment of his possessions, the scripture ascribes it to him as if he has offered a continual blessing. So here then is the double truth contained within this teaching. Firstly, that any man or woman must not be over-concerned with material things if they are a preacher and a teacher of the Word of God. But secondly, equally important, is the people of God must never feel in their duty, their responsibility, to see that Bible teachers receive reasonable support. This passage lays down an obligation to both the teacher and on the people benefiting from his teaching alike. So having looked at the equipping of God's messengers, let's take a moment now to consider what Jesus teaches them about their conduct, the conduct of God's messengers as they're out and about in the world. So we're picking up the text at verse 11, where Jesus tells them, When you enter into any city or village, make inquiries as to who 
in it is worthy, and stay there until you go out of it. When you come into a household, give greetings to it. If the house is worthy, then let your peace rest upon it. If it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not receive you and will not listen to your words, when you leave that house or that city, shake off the dust of it from your feet. This is the truth, I tell you. It will be easier for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than it is for that city. So here is a passage full of the most practical type of advice for anyone who wishes to be the Lord's messenger. When they entered a city or village, they were to seek out a house that was known uh, as well in a way that is described as worthy. The point is, they are to look out for those who offer support or accommodation. And if it's in a house that has a bad reputation, either for morals or conduct, or even just poor fellowship, well, they shouldn't stay there. It could seriously harm their reputation and thereby in the longer term hinder their ability in spreading the gospel message. You see, they were not to identify themselves with anyone who might prove to be a moral handicap in the future or any situation for that matter. Now, this does not for one minute mean to say that they were not to seek out to win people for Christ, but it is to say that the messenger of Jesus must take great care with whom they make close friendships with and with whom they receive financial support from. When they entered a house, they were to stay in it until they moved on to the next place. Now, this was very much a matter of courtesy within the culture of that day. Because, of course, they might be tempted after getting to know an area for a while, having won over certain supporters and converts over in a particular place, they might be tempted to move to another house again. Maybe a house which could provide more luxury, more comfort. The message of Jesus must never be seen to give the impression that anyone is courting people for the sake of material things or for the fact that they have financial resources. Or that our movements are dictated by the demands of our own comfort rather than where we're really called to go where the greatest need is. Now the passage also talks about the giving of the greeting of peace but it also says this thing about taking it back again. Now this may sound strange to us but this was a typically Middle Eastern thing to do in those days particularly and to an extent it still goes on today. In the Middle East, then as today, a spoken word is thought to have a kind of active, independent existence. It goes out of the mouth as independently as an arrow from the bow, and it finds its place. Now, this idea emerged regularly in the Old Testament, especially in connection with words spoken by God. For example, Isaiah hear God say, in chapter 45, 23, By myself I have sworn from my mouth, and it has gone forth in righteousness a word that shall not return void. And in chapter 55, 11 of Isaiah, he says, So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it will accomplish that which I purpose and prosper in the thing for which it is sent. And Zechariah, he sees a flying scroll and he hears a voice speaking the word that says, this is the curse that goes over the face of the whole land. So out it goes into the world. And to this day in the Middle East, if someone speaks their religious blessing, 
to a passerby and wishes a peace upon them, and then they discover that the passerby is in fact of another faith, they will sometimes even come and take their blessing back again. So the idea here is that the messenger of God can offer their blessing and their rest upon a house or a village or a city or a town. But if it turns out that that house is unworthy or it rejects that message of blessing, then he can, as it were, recall it. This situation then meant for them, who were really, in a sense, acting as travelling evangelists, if they found any town or village or city where the message was refused, then the messenger of God, them on this occasion, were free to shake the dust off that place, off their feet, and to move on. And that principle applies to us today, I believe, to a degree. We don't need to keep going back to the same places again and again and try and persuade people or heaven help us dispute or argue people into the kingdom. We reach a point where we move on and we focus our resources where they're more willingly received. You see, the picture painted here comes from the idea that to the Jews of Jesus' day, the dust of a Gentile place or road was in fact defiling. Therefore, when, for example, a Jew crossed the border of Palestine and then they entered back into their own country after a journey outside in Gentile lands, they would stand at the border and shake the dust of the Gentile roads off their feet. So that, in a sense, spiritually, that last part particles of pollution might, in a sense, be cleansed away. So Jesus is saying here, if a city or a village, they don't receive you, you may treat it thereafter as a Gentile place. Now again, we must be clear that what Jesus is saying here in this passage has both a temporary and an eternal truth. The temporary part of this truth is this. Jesus is not saying that certain people should be abandoned or that they are in any way outside the message of the gospel or beyond the reach of the grace of God. This was an instruction like that opening instruction we talked about last time about going not initially to the Gentiles or the Samaritans. It came from the situation in which it is given and it was probably simply due to the time factor and the mission involved that was placed upon these disciples. You see, time was short and as many people as possible should hear the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom of God. And there was no time to argue with people who were just seeking to to be stubborn. There perhaps would be time to come back later. But at this moment, these 12 guys, this small initial start of the spread of the gospel, the disciples had been given mission to tour the whole country as quickly as possible. And therefore, they had to keep moving on. And that if they were not immediately made welcome or their message was refused, then they were free to move on from that. But the permanent truth of this teaching is that one of the basic facts of life is that time and time again an opportunity may be offered to someone or may come to someone and present itself and if it's not taken up at that moment then it can pass them by and it may never come back again. To these people in Palestine there was an opportunity to receive the gospel but if they did not take the opportunity it might very well be missed and never return. As the Proverbs themselves said, three things do not come back. The spoken word, the spent arrow, and the lost opportunity. This happens, we know, in every sphere of life. The tragedy of life is often the tragedy of lost opportunities. 
And then finally Jesus says, this last verse he says, that it will be easier for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment for the town or the city which has refused this message of Christ and the kingdom. So what does that mean? Because we know Sodom and Gomorrah are repeatedly quoted in the New Testament as representing, well, they're sort of the proverbial representations of wickedness. They're quoted in Matthew 11, Luke 10, Luke 17, in Romans, Peter in his second letter talks about it, and in Jude. Now, it's interesting to note, and it's helpful to understand what Jesus means by this, that these cities of Sodom and Gomorrah had been guilty of an appalling breach of the law of hospitality just prior to their destruction. You see, they too had rejected the messengers of God who had come about them. More than rejected, they wanted to abuse these messengers in the most appalling way. But what Jesus is pointing out is, even at their worst, Sodom and Gomorrah were not given the opportunity to reject this message of the kingdom of God and of the Messiah's arrival in Christ. So that was why, that in a spiritual sense it is, it will be easier for them in the last judgment than it will be for these towns and villages of Galilee who have the Messiah before them and the disciples of the Messiah, but they're rejecting it. You see, it's always true that the greater the privilege, the greater the opportunity, then the greater the responsibility is for all of us to respond to it. Okay, my friends, that's it for today. I do hope you find that teaching somewhat helpful. Let me just remind you that wherever you're receiving your podcasts from, you can subscribe to it and make sure you don't miss another episode. And it's also worth noting that there are links available to places where you can access further teaching resources that I make available on other platforms. Places like Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and even places like Patreon and LinkedIn, where I tend to share more formal, structured discipleship type training courses always free always freely available to do those you need to follow the links in the episode notes now lots of podcast platforms aren't providing active links anymore so the place where this podcast is hosted is the bibleproject.buzzsprout.com and if you go there you'll find not only a full list of all the podcasts from day one But within those podcasts, you'll find an episode notes page, which contains a transcript, but also active links to all those other places. But a quick request is if you are benefiting from this teaching, can I ask that you maybe consider sharing it, liking it, providing a link to friends on places where you exist or where you communicate with people on the web. It is, I believe, I've been told, the most effective way that we can get the teaching of the Word of God in front of other people, allowing them to make a decision to allow the life-changing power of studying of the Word of God, part of the rhythm of their daily lives also. I'm so grateful for each and every one of you who've made the decision to come along with me on this journey for what I believe will be quite a few number of years yet, if the Lord gives me time. 
but it's amazing to me that something started two and a half years ago with 26 downloads of episode one has grown into something where tens and tens of thousands of people around the world in over 160 countries have made the decision to make the study of the Bible part of their daily lives. The podcast is every day, Monday to Friday, on thebibleproject.buzzsprout.com and then there are periodic compilation episodes placed on the sister podcast, which is the Living in Faith Everyday podcast at buzzsprout.com, where you will find that there are these weekend compilation episodes usually posted on a Sunday. They just stay there for three months to allow people who've maybe missed a block of teaching to access it and play catch up in the easiest of formats. So that's it for today. I do trust I'll see you back here tomorrow. Thank you again for joining me on the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Bye-bye for now.